Welcome to the Rosemont Baptist Church Podcast. Rosemont is a thriving group of believers who desire to connect with Jesus and His church, grow in faith and understanding of God's Word, and serve in our local area and around the world. We are located in LaGrange, Georgia at 3794 Hamilton Road and invite you to attend any of our three services on Sunday mornings. Please visit our website at rosemontchurch.org for more information. And now we pray that God speaks to you in a personal way as you listen to this week's message from Pastor Adam Camp. Take your Bibles open to Exodus chapter 26. Exodus 26, as you're finding that, let me just say what an exciting, great week it was. So many people involved in VBS. I don't know if you notice all the adults, all the leaders up here this morning to be with these kids, to interact with these kids. We, every year before uh, VBS, each night we feed all of our workers. That's just something that the church does just as a thank you to them. Doesn't cost our families anything. We cover all that. Fellowship Hall filled with people every night before VBS, people that are working, serving, loving those kids. Thank you. Some of you volunteered. Thank you. So many others of you prayed uh, for this week. A lot of good things. The gospel was presented uh, all week with these kids. And, and we won't know until eternity the, impact, eternity the impact we've actually made. And so thank you for that. If you're interested in serving, there are a lot of other opportunities upcoming. Pine Mountain VBS starts tonight. If you're interested in serving there, you come talk to me. I can point you to the right person. Rock Ridge is upcoming. Camp Viola is upcoming. Mission trips through July. Uh, the end of July, we've got a, a student mission trip to Boston. So just a lot of stuff. Every week is kind of jam-packed with a lot of things. So you continue to be in prayer. You continue to pray the Lord does great things and that he allows us just to impact eternity for him. Now, we're continuing our study this morning through the book of Exodus, and we've turned a little bit of a corner, right? We kind of divided Exodus into kind of three major areas. They were kind of uh, in Egypt. Then when they left Egypt, they're kind of wandering in the wilderness in the Ten Commandments. And then really the third section that we're kind of getting into this morning is the idea of the tabernacle and God's presence being reestablished. And so I'm going to spend a lot of time this morning thinking through that. We've already kind of looked ahead to the tabernacle. We've been thinking about the tabernacle. I've made a lot of comments to you about how it links up with the past and looks ahead to the future. We're going to walk through that this morning. We're going to spend a lot of time this morning thinking through and understanding exactly what the tabernacle meant. But here's the big picture I want you to get this morning. As we see individual scriptures and we kind of talk through the truth that the Lord gives us, the big picture here is that the Lord has been at work from the beginning to redeem sinful, broken people back to himself. You understand that? From the beginning, God has had a plan. He still has a plan. And so I want to kind of walk through this with you this morning. I want you to see it and understand it and really embrace it. And I pray the Lord speaks very clearly to you through his word. So Exodus chapter 26. Now we're just going to kind of jump through a few verses. I'm going to summarize 26, the first many verses, and we're going to spend some time towards the end. But chapter 26 is where the Lord begins to go into some detail of exactly how the tabernacle is going to be built. Right? He's already walked us through the Ark of the Covenant. He's already walked us through the lampstand and the table. We've already thought through and looked at those examples. Beginning in chapter 26 now, the Lord's going to give some detail about building the tabernacle. So let's begin in verse 1 of Exodus 26. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns, 
you shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. Now, the cherubim, we're going to come back to here in just a few minutes. So, so kind of set that idea aside. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits. The breadth of each curtain shall be four cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. All right, so God's given them very specific detailed instructions about how to build this tabernacle. Verse 7, you shall also make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains you shall make. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits. The breadth of each curtain, four cubits. The 11 curtains shall be the same size. Verse 15, you shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits shall be the length of a frame. And a cubit and a half, the breadth of each frame. There shall be two tenons in each frame for fitting together. So shall you do for all the frames of the tabernacle. Now down to verse 29. You shall overlay the frames with gold and shall make their rings of gold for holders, for the bars. You shall overlay the bars with gold. And then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you are shown on the mountain. Now, here's the first truth I want you to see, and then we're going to walk back through this specifically so you can kind of get this from the text. But the tabernacle is God's dwelling place on earth. The tabernacle is going to be God's dwelling place on earth. Now, I've alluded to this, I've mentioned this, I've talked through this a little bit, but I want to kind of think through this in some detail, and I want you to see the connection here. God has said to these people, listen, we're going to build this tabernacle. We're going to build this location so I can reside with you. Now, we've talked already, and we looked at some verses of Scripture a couple of weeks ago in Hebrews that talks about how the temple is a shadow of heavenly things, right? So the temple, very importantly now, is looking ahead. It's looking ahead to heaven one day when we'll be with Christ We'll be in his presence. We'll live with him in eternity. So we've already kind of seen that idea. But I want to think for a few minutes this morning about how the tabernacle also looks back. Now, the thing the tabernacle looks back on is the Garden of Eden. And so I want to kind of remind you of what happened in the Garden of Eden, draw some parallels, and help you understand why that matters now. Right? The Garden of Eden was the place that God had created. He placed Adam and Eve Everything was good. Adam and Eve sinned, and they broke that relationship with the Lord. Right, so Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the world. Everything changes. That good, perfect creation is now marred with sin, and the personal relationship that Adam and Eve had with the Lord is now broken. So at this point in Scripture, there's no way for that broken relationship to be mended, right? So when the Lord removes his presence from Eden because of sin, when he creates the temple, he's reestablishing his presence among the people, and he's going to do it by reminding them of what he did and how he interacted with them in Eden, okay? So just track along with me for a few minutes here because there are several parallels I want you to see, four in particular, that connect the tabernacle with Eden. The first one is the east-facing entrance. If you remember in Genesis chapter 3, and you don't have to flip back, flip back, I just want to read it to you. Genesis 3, 24. People had sinned, Adam and Eve had sinned, they had been 
kicked out of the garden, the Bible says. He drove out the man. And at the east end of the garden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. In Exodus chapter 27, verse 13, the breadth of the court on the front to the east shall be 50 cubits. So the Garden of Eden faces east. The tabernacle faces east. You're like, eh. Okay, what else? No big deal. Probably just a coincidence. Here's another parallel. The tree in the garden and the tree created in the tabernacle. You may remember in Genesis chapter 2 verse 9, the Bible says, Out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst or the middle of the garden, right? Remember, we read a couple of weeks ago in Exodus 25, God commanded the people of Israel to build a lampstand with seven different pieces that was designed to look just like a tree. It was placed in the midst of the temple of the tabernacle, just like the tree of life was placed in the midst of the garden. So we've got the east facing, we've got the tree in the garden and in the tabernacle. Here's the third thing, the presence of the Lord. Right, Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, Adam and Eve heard, they heard physically the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Right, scripture teaches us that the Lord was physically present in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Right? He walked with them. When they sinned, he removed that. He removed that presence. Leviticus 26 tells us this. This is the Lord speaking. I will make my dwelling among you. He's talking about the tent, the tabernacle. My soul shall not abhor you. Listen, and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. So just as the Lord walked in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 2, Leviticus and, and parts of Deuteronomy tell us the Lord again will walk in the presence of his people. He'll walk among them because he's reestablishing this relationship with them. So east-facing tree in the garden, tree in the tabernacle, the presence of the Lord having been removed from Eden is now being reestablished in the tabernacle. And then the fourth, and in my opinion, the most interesting, God said. Now you may remember in the creation account, God created everything by speaking it. So we see all these examples in the book of Genesis of God saying. So Genesis chapter one, verse three and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Genesis 1, 6, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Genesis 1, 9, and God said, let the waters under heaven be gathered together into one place. Genesis 1, 11, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. Genesis 1, 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heaven to separate the day from the night. Genesis 1.20, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Genesis 1.24, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Now, if you're counting, there's seven different times the Lord specifically said in the book of Genesis, as he's creating, as he's building Eden, as he's establishing his relationship with his people. Remember, the intention of the Lord is to live in fellowship with the people he's created. That's us. The reason we can't is because we've broken it. We've sinned. We've separated ourselves. 
So when God creates everything in the book of Genesis, he speaks it into existence. Everything is good. Seven different times God said. Now you fast forward to Exodus chapter 25 verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, right? Exodus 25 1, the Lord said to Moses. Exodus 30 verse 11, the Lord said to Moses. Exodus 30, 17, the Lord said to Moses. Exodus 30, 22, the Lord said to Moses. Exodus 30, 34, the Lord said to Moses. Exodus 31, 1, the Lord said to Moses. And Exodus 31, 12, the Lord said to Moses. Now, I don't know if you were counting those or not, but there's seven times in the book of Exodus. Just as the Lord spoke into existence and said in the book of Genesis, seven different times the Lord says now to Moses, this is the way you create it. So can we bring the slide back up with the four things there, the parallels, just to kind of see these again, to understand, to recap, and to understand exactly what the Lord is doing, right? The east-facing Eden, right? The east-facing tabernacle, the tree in the midst of the garden, the tree in the tabernacle, the presence of God reestablished in the temple, God said, right? So there are all these instances where the Lord is reestablishing his presence. He's looking ahead to what heaven will one day be, but he's reminding the people of Israel what he had created and how his good and perfect plan is for his people to live physically in communion and fellowship with him, right? So we're kind of building, we're, we're, we're creating this backdrop to understand where we're going here. Right, this is the backdrop, this is the foundation, this is the tapestry upon which the Lord's going to paint this beautiful picture. Because I want you to notice now in Exodus 26, beginning in verse 31, he's speaking of the tabernacle, he's speaking of how this is going to be built, and here's what he says, you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. We're coming back to the cherubim here in just a minute. You shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. You shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. Now watch, this is significant. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy and you shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. You shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. Right? The tabernacle is reestablishing the presence of the Lord, one. Number two, the tabernacle now reminds us of God's holiness. The tabernacle is going to remind us now of the holiness of the Lord. Now let me point this out for you because I want you to see this. I want you to pull verse 33 back up and I want you to notice exactly what's happened in Exodus chapter 26, verse 33. You shall hang the veil from the clasps, bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil, and the veil shall do what? And the veil shall do what? separate for you the holy place from the most holy, right? There is this separation between a holy God and sinful people. 
Right? God has removed his presence in Eden. He's holy. We're not. We can't come into his presence. When he builds the tabernacle, he wants to establish his presence. But you can't just wander into the Holy of Holies. You can't just choose to bring your family in there and do a selfie with the Ark of the Covenant, right? That's a holy place. It represents the very presence of the Lord where he lives. And so he creates this barrier, this veil that separates a holy God from sinful people. Now he's going to guard it. This is what's very interesting to me. We're going to throw back now to the Garden of Eden. We're going to bring in some more parallels. You may remember that in the Garden of Eden, when he had driven out Adam and Eve at the east of the garden, the Bible says in Genesis 3, 24, that he placed cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life, right? Adam and Eve were sinful. They could not re-enter into the, whole, into the Garden of Eden. They couldn't re-enter into the presence of a holy God. So God placed cherubim there to guard the way. Exodus chapter 26, verse 1, as he's creating the tabernacle, here's what the Lord says. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and you shall make with them cherubim skillfully worked into them. Exodus 26, 31, you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, fine twisted linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. Right? We're going to sew these cherubim into the veil, into the temple to remind you that you have been separated, that we are guarding the way. You can't enter into the holy presence of the Lord. Remember when the Ark of the Covenant is created, the Bible says you're going to create two cherubim made out of gold, Indian. Their wings are going to be outstretched over the Ark of the Covenant. Just a reminder again of the separation of the holiness, guarding sinful man from a holy God. So just watch for a second right here. You need to understand something. This is so important to your walk with Christ. You cannot on your own re-enter into the presence of the Lord. You just don't have the ability to do it. So, so if you think you can say enough or do enough or give enough or be kind enough or et cetera, et cetera, you can't enter, right? The way has been shut. It's been guarded. It's been locked off from us, right? We are separated from a holy God. One writer said it like this, nothing symbolized Israel's limited access more clearly than the cherubim. These cherubim blocked the entrance back to Eden. The cherubim on the, cherubim on the tapestries in the tabernacle presented something similar in a symbolic manner. They guarded the way to God. So now watch, God's created visually for these people, right? There's this physical creation now that they can see, that they can understand. They're going to build together. God has created for them this very simple understanding. He's going to reestablish his presence in the tabernacle. He's going to do it in such a way that they're reminded of Eden, but he's going to be very clear in the midst of all this that he is holy, they are not, and there's a clear barrier that separates them from the Lord. So here's the question we've got to ask, right? And here's the question the people of Israel would have asked. What do we have to do to get back into the presence of a holy God? How can we live among him again? How can we be with him? How can sinful man enter back into a right relationship with a holy 
God. Here's the third truth, and I'm going to paint this for you using New Testament scripture. The tabernacle points to ultimate forgiveness through Jesus. Now, you have the privilege of living in an era where you have the entire canon of scripture. You've got all of it. Beginning to end. You know the whole story. You know everything that God has done. It's a beautiful picture of redemption and his love for us. The separation we've already talked about is clear throughout. And it's only through Jesus that we can reestablish that. The people of Israel didn't know that at the time. They're looking ahead. They're hopeful. They're thinking one day Messiah is going to come. But they don't exactly know when or where or how. And so they're asking the same sort of question. How can unholy people enter back into the presence of a holy God? Now they, the people in Exodus, wouldn't live to see this day. We have this great privilege of knowing the story of Jesus. And I want you to see something here that's fascinating. John chapter 1, right? The first 14 verses of John chapter 1, the prologue of John. Some would call it the the Mount Everest of Scripture. It's just a beautiful account of exactly who Jesus is and exactly what he did. But I want you to notice John 1, 1, and then more specifically, John 1, 14. Pull that up. John 1, 1 says this. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. John 1, 14 says, go to the next slide. And the word became flesh, right? So that's Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, here's the fascinating thing, right? And if you don't understand Greek, I took Greek uh, in seminary. Matt Morvay can probably tell you a lot more about it than I can. I took it. I don't remember a whole lot about it, but I remember studying through it. And at the time, knowing enough to pass my class. Amen, right? We've all been there, done that. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. If you were to go back to the original language and read this, I've got the original for you here translated. When you translate Greek, it's sometimes it's a lot more wooden is the phrase that scholars use. It's not, as, it's not as flowy and the words are a little weird. But I want you to notice, go to the next one, how this actually plays out. As we think about the Lord dwelling among us, Jesus becoming flesh, dwelling among us, show them what it says right here. The actual literal translation says the word became flesh and did, what's the word there? Tabernacle. That's what the Greek actually says among us. Now, if you don't understand, this is the, this is the beautiful part about Scripture, man. If you just read through things and don't really study them, you, the, the, the nuances are lost on you. The beauty of the Scripture is lost on you. Like the beauty of this story is lost on you. But when you spend the time to study it and understand it, you begin to get kind of dig out these beautiful jewels and all these things that the Lord has given you and all these just incredible pictures of his goodness. He uses this word tabernacle. Why? Because he's referring back to Exodus, right? Just as the Lord was in Eden and then his presence was removed, he's going to reestablish the connection through the tabernacle. But even that wasn't perfect. It's not until Jesus comes and resides in the tabernacle. You see what he's doing there? You see the connection? It's not till Jesus comes in the flesh and lives among us that we actually have this opportunity now to come back into the presence of a holy God. You see the connection there? Man, it's this incredibly beautiful story. From the beginning, God had a plan. All the way back to Eden, God knew 
God had redemption. God had love in his heart, right? And so when Jesus comes and he becomes flesh and he lives or dwells among us, it literally means he tabernacled. He lives in the tent. He's looking back to exactly what God did through the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. And if, it, just in case you don't believe that's true, you're like, I don't know, man. That seems like a, a stretch. Did Jesus really believe that? Or did he just use this word that maybe we don't fully understand? Here's what Jesus says in John chapter 2. He's debating with the Jews. And they say to him, what sign do you, Jesus, show for us these things? Right, what can you do to prove that you are who you say you are? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, right? He's talking about himself. He's talking about the temple, the tabernacle. He's now living and dwelling among us. Now, here's the most beautiful part. I'm almost done. Matthew chapter 27, right? So fast forward many centuries, the tabernacle is built. Eventually, the temple will be built in Jerusalem, the permanent structure that's very similar to the tabernacle. It also has a holy of holies. It also has a veil that separates the holy God from the sinful man. Matthew chapter 27, verse 50. Jesus has been crucified. He's on the cross. The Bible says Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. In other words, he died. And then in Matthew 27, 51, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks split, right? Jesus takes that veil. Jesus takes that divider. Jesus takes that curtain that separates a holy God and a sinful people, and he rips it upon his death, not from the bottom as if we did something, but from the top down, symbolizing God has done this for us. Christ has died on the cross for our sins. He has finally reestablished the relationship, and it's only through Jesus that we can re-enter into a perfect relationship with a holy God. Isn't that a beautiful picture? It's incredible, man. It's absolutely stunning what the Lord does all through Scripture. It's just right there before us. He has torn. He has torn that dividing line. No longer do we have to be separated. No longer do we have to wonder. No longer do we have to offer sacrifices hoping it's enough. Jesus came and gave his life and tore the veil, giving us access to a holy God through Jesus. Here's the most beautiful part. The veil is still open. Did you know that? You still have access. Now, here's what some of us do, right? And I've been there. I get it. Some of us are like, I hear you. I know it, man. I know I need to do better. I need to, you know, X, Y, Z. I need to get back in church or, or I need to do better with my relationship with the Lord. Or I need to do whatever. And so here's what we typically do. We think I've got to kind of inch my way back to the Lord. If the Lord's up there and I'm here, so I got, I got to do incremental things, right? I've got, I've got to spend some more time reading my Bible. Then I need to do a devotion at least three or four times a week. Then I've got to pray a little bit more. Then I can start attending church a little bit more regularly. And we put all these qualifiers, all these steps into place, thinking that it's our actions that are going to fix the situation, right? Here's what we need to understand. And by the way, all those things are good. Praying quiet time, studying, coming to church. All those are great things, but here's what we need to understand. We've done nothing to receive any of that. We can't do anything to get it back. It's all because of Jesus. 
And so my encouragement and challenge to you is if you've kind of stepped away and you think you've got to do all these, all you've got to do is cross over that threshold again back into the presence of the Lord, trusting in Christ because of what he's accomplished for you. Now, we're going to give you a chance here in just a minute. We do this every Sunday. Maybe you're the person that's kind of strayed a little bit and, and you need to repent of some things and kind of get back into that holy relationship with the Lord. Maybe you're the person that says, I've never done this before. I hear the story and it's pretty cool. I've never connected Eden and this tabernacle and Jesus and the temple and the veil. And I get that whole picture, but I've never actually received anything from Jesus. Maybe this is the moment that you pray and repent of your sins and turn to Christ. Whatever the case may be, we're going to give you this opportunity here in just a second. We're going to give you this chance to pray and to trust and to hear from the Lord. And so I just want to encourage you. What are you doing with Jesus? How are you living for him? How are you allowing him to work in your life to accomplish the things he wants you to accomplish? You don't need a thousand steps. You simply need to cross over the threshold that Jesus placed when he died on the cross for our sins. Will you trust him? Let's pray. Lord, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and and you paint a compelling picture all throughout Scripture of your glory and your majesty and your beauty and your holiness. Thank you, Father. Thank you for what you've given. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that the veil was torn. We no longer have to offer sacrifices or just hope or just wonder, Father, because of Christ, sinful man like me, Lord, a sinful man like me, can enter into the presence of a holy God. Not because of what I've done, but because of everything Jesus has done. Convey that truth to these precious people. Convey that truth to their hearts, Father. May this be the day, Lord, that somebody here, maybe for the first time, turns away from the sin and the things of the world and turns to Jesus. May your name be made known. Father, use us to accomplish the things you desire for us to do. And we'll praise your name. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.